I am so excited to bring you guys this episode. Welcome back to Due Diligence. Today's guest is Michael Mislansky. Michael is a communication strategist and he is a language expert who basically helps companies and nonprofits and different organizations deal with crisis communication. So if something blows up and you need to scramble to figure out how to communicate to your customers, to the public, to your stakeholders, he is the expert that companies bring in. And so I wanted to talk to Michael because we're living in some tricky, tricky times. And there are a lot of things you can do wrong and say wrong, especially if you are a company and if you have a brand reputation to uphold. And because of that, I wanted to bring in somebody with Michael's expertise to share some of the lessons he's learned over the last several decades about how to communicate effectively, especially in moments of crisis. So that's what this interview is all about. I got to tell you guys, this was one of my favorite interviews I have done so far because it's just something that I really didn't know a lot about. So hearing somebody like Michael break it all down, simplify the key principles that everybody needs to know, whether you're a founder or a marketer or even a creator, right? Everybody has a brand these days. And so learning these principles, I think, is important for everybody. We get into, you know, the importance of authenticity, what it actually means, especially in the context of uh, a brand. We talk about how companies these days can maybe reconcile pressures from within their organization, from employees who maybe are a little bit more progressive or have certain values, and how to reconcile that with the demands and the expectations of their customers and maybe other stakeholders and maybe the public and the media, right? Lots of different stakeholders to take into consideration. We talk about how companies can address regulators or policymakers. We also go over some really interesting examples We talk about Daily Harvest. If you guys followed that, I made a few videos about it a while ago when they had that big recall that happened with some ingredient in their supply chain that went unchecked and caused a lot of health issues for customers. And it spiraled out of control into this huge controversy. And so how should have they dealt with something like that? And what could they have done better? We also discuss a really interesting recent example, Bud Light and Target and Kohl's and these companies that have come under fire for basically supporting causes that their more conservative customer base actually sees as being too progressive. And at the very end, I ask him for some examples of leaders uh, in business and in politics that he sees as really exemplifying the skills of great communication. And he comes up with some interesting examples. Some of them might be a little bit surprising, but I think he brought up some really good points. Overall, it was just such a treat to talk to Michael. So I hope you guys get as much out of this conversation as I did. He has an incredible book called The Language of Trust, which I will link to in the show notes. I will also be linking to some of the other resources, the books that he recommends. And by the way, guys, if you like this episode, I really hope you share it with a friend, share it with anybody you think would find this useful, maybe even give a little rating review of the podcast while you're at it. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Michael Mislansky. I am here today with Michael Mislansky. He is the founder of Mislansky and Partners, and I'm so excited to have him here today to talk about all things PR, crisis communications, especially in a time like this. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Before we dive into crisis comms, I would like to understand how you went from studying European history in undergrad to doing what you're doing now, advising companies like Pfizer, Bank of America, Microsoft, Starbucks on navigating this very tricky landscape of communication that we have today. 
Yeah, I can't say it was all part of a plan because it was not. My first job was actually on Ross Perot's presidential campaign in 1992, where my boss then became my boss again about 10 years later after going to law school and being a lawyer and working on a, running a dot-com and the first dot-com boom, but came back to this, uh, this business because I was, I was deeply interested in the idea of how communication shapes perceptions and attitudes and behaviors, and it was being applied in the political context, but I believe that there was an opportunity to, to tackle many of the challenges that companies had in their own, uh, own businesses, whether it was communicating with customers or advocating on issues. And so came back into the business at that point and really moved us into the realm uh, of the corporate world and have been building a book of clients that we're really proud of ever since. Was there something that you learned when you were working on the Ross Perot campaign that led you to think, wow, so much of this is about communications and storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I think there was something powerful about that campaign for those who remember. He was a, a very disruptive candidate who came in and spoke a language that was very different from what the two politicians at the time, uh, Bill Clinton and George Trooper Walker Bush, were communicating. And as much as people remember Clinton for his incredible communication style of I feel your pain and, and really connecting with people, Perot had this very distinct approach as well, where he was the first kind of businessman to come in in a long time and talk about the facts. He was going to open up the hood and people were ready for that at the time. They still in many ways are, but it just showed this really distinctive style and, and how much it could disrupt the political process. I want to double click on that because for whatever reason right now, I'm reading the memoir of David Axelrod. And one thing that he brings up is he will really insist on this idea that authenticity is really important and that the message needs to be an authentic fit for the candidate. Would you say that that's true in your experience? Absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, in the political world, there's so many examples over time. The one that comes to mind the most is Michael Dukakis in 1988, I guess, getting in a tank and wearing a helmet and just looking completely out of place. But you see when politicians act in ways that are not authentic. The same is true with companies. I mean, I think where companies get into trouble, and I know we're going to talk about Bud Light, but arguably they were operating in a space that was just not authentic to them as a brand. And that is where the risk is the greatest. And so finding that authenticity, I think that word has a tendency to get overused, but finding that fit between who you really are and what you believe, and then going out there and communicating about it is, is where you have the greatest thing. How do you as a company know if something is authentic to you? I think the authenticity comes from a number of different places, depending on the organization. So there are a lot of situations where it comes from the leadership, you know, a new CEO comes in or a CEO has been there and they have been communicating something or, or acting in a certain way for a long period of time. The culture is really built around an idea that may have not become manifest in external messaging. And there's an opportunity example that comes to mind is when we worked with Starbucks uh, a long time ago and they were getting ready to launch their shared planet program. They had been doing work on ethical sourcing or responsible sourcing for a long time, but had never talked about it. McDonald's came out with Rainforest Alliance coffee. Starbucks was uh, kind of livid that they hadn't gotten there first, but it was something that they could talk about with a great deal of proof and authenticity. And that was in many ways driven by Howard Schultz. You know, so that's, that's one that's leader led or culture led. Often it is, you know, when we come in and we're trying to find a platform for reputation that is authentic, it's looking deeply within the organization and trying to find something that's there, but just has not been brought to the surface mm -hmm. uh, or it's been communicated internally, but not externally. It's when companies try and find something new and authentic that it's particularly challenging. 
What about when companies have a bit of a clash between where the leadership stands maybe and where the the culture and the employees Mm -hmm. stand? And that happens a lot in big tech, which is where I come from and which is where a lot of listeners um, of this podcast work. We see things like employees pushing for certain kinds of change or even just discourse within the organization about certain things. And the leadership is against it because they see it as a distraction. What would you say is the right way to handle those situations? That's actually, it's one of the biggest problems that companies are facing right now, where for many organizations, many of the biggest brands that operate, uh, whether it's in tech, particularly in tech, but in other industries as well, where they operate in big urban centers that tend to attract more progressive uh, employee base, particularly among younger employees. You've got employees who are, who are strong advocates for progressive views and values working at companies that often serve a much more diverse population of customers. And so it's, on the one hand, you've got leadership who's often older and more conservative, and there's the clash between employees and leadership, but there's also this gap between employees and customers. And so I think the pendulum swung, I think, far in the direction of employees kind of having power and leverage to push things in ways that in some cases, ultimately led to problems for companies reputationally. I think the balance is swinging back. I think the right way to address this is for companies to try and have have a discussion about it, you know, and, uh, and set expectations. So one of the things that we advise a lot of clients at the leadership level is that if you don't set expectations about what you are or are not going to talk about, what issues you are or are not going to tackle, how you address or don't want to address certain topics. If you don't get in front of those things, then you're going to end up reacting and that usually puts you at a disadvantage. And so for leaders, it is, okay, what are the issues that are important to you that you want to tackle? What are the issues that are not related to your business or your culture or your priorities? And then basically establishing that with your employees before they push you to try and address it. And do you mean talking about these things internally, externally, or both? It Depending on the issue. I mean, I think setting the expectations is important to do internally. If employees come in and there is a discussion or a statement of belief around what it is that the company stands for, what the values are, what issues that therefore the company will or will not talk about, it is much easier to say to a group of employees, look, we've said that we are not going to talk about this. Now, maybe there's a, a way to challenge that or to reevaluate it, but it's not an open question then it makes it much easier to figure out what the external communication should be. Lots to unpack there, but I want to understand when do companies hire you? And you work with, you know, nonprofits and you work with all sorts of entities, but especially the kinds of Fortune 500 companies that hire you, do they only hire you in times of crisis? Do you have ongoing sort of work with them? What does that look like? What are the events that precipitate your engagements? Yeah, so I would say the reality is that you only get hired in times of crisis if you've got a relationship with somebody beforehand because it's a tough time to go out and build a trusted relationship with a client. So sometimes it's someone that we've worked with before that we get brought in in the midst of a crisis at a new organization. But in most cases, we are working with clients in advance of that. We're trying to help them understand the audiences that they need to communicate with most, their key stakeholder groups. That includes customers, but it also includes regulators. It includes NGOs and other stakeholders and definitely includes internal audiences. And we're helping them uh, with a range of challenges that we call language strategy. Any place where really the message is critical, where it's difficult to communicate a message that can be internal strategy, it can be external reputation, you know, platform and communication. I'm curious about messaging to an audience of regulators or Congress, because I've been thinking about and observing AI like the rest of the world. 
And it's really interesting to see, for example, Sam Altman doing his sort of like tour of the world and kind of spreading the gospel of AI, but also warning people against it and and also, you know, talking to Congress. I would love to understand sort of how companies that really need to deal with regulatory issues should be thinking about addressing regulators and addressing policymakers in a way that doesn't antagonize them, that still kind of lets them hold their ground and convey what might be complex topics. So what are some tips around that or learnings? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question and a really important one. And, and I think one where often the initial reaction is to let the people who are focused on policy lead the way on communication. And I would argue that it's still fundamentally a communication challenge when you're going out there to interact with them. And so the things that we advise clients are a couple. First of all, as is often obvious when companies testify before Congress, congressmen are not the most sophisticated audience in the world, right? They are often just like consumers. And so you need to treat them and think about messaging to them much like consumers, although they have some different interests and in elements of their agenda. So that's the first thing is talk to them like they are a consumer. The second is often companies are coming in when they are opposed to regulation, but there are different ways to approach something that you want that you don't like. Very often they are four elements of regulation or legislation, or they are aligned on principles that they can agree with Congress about. Sam Altman certainly trying to do that now. And building that alignment, talking about what you're for, you know, when you are trying to build support for something, going back to ancient rhetoric, the idea is that you use positive future-focused language in order to create a picture of a future that you want, that that person wants to be a part of. And so that kind of messaging is much more effective than standing there and telling whether it's congressmen, regulators, really any audience, what you're against and why. You know, we, we have a saying that is, when was the last time you changed somebody's mind by telling them that they were wrong? And basically, if you come out and tell people all the reasons that their idea for regulation is wrong, you're much less likely to change their minds than if you figure out where you're aligned and try and move, you know, two degrees, six degrees, 10 degrees, as opposed to just uh, all or nothing. It's interesting to me as a layperson who doesn't really know PR comms, how many of the principles of communication seem to just be a macrocosm of what works interpersonally, where you want to make the person feel seen and validated and heard, mm -hmm. want to find common ground, want to be non-combative, cooperative, and, you know, like use the Dale Carnegie principles of, you know, being likable and, and working together. So that has always been striking to me. Would you say that that is accurate? Uh, it's a hundred percent accurate. I mean, I, I spend so much time really trying to coach business people to, to appreciate that, that the things that don't work at home probably are not going to work with an audience, particularly in a crisis. I mean, in a crisis situation, you think about, in fact, the, the visual that I often use to introduce people to how to think about crisis is. It's a, a couple in a bed facing opposite directions, like in the aftermath of some sort of breach of trust. And the question is, what approach to communication are you going to use if you try and tell the other person that it wasn't so bad, that they should just get over it, that they're wrong? Like none of those things work. What you need to do is start to rebuild trust. You need to find common ground. You need to demonstrate with your actions you know, what it is that you're saying and confidence building. And so all of those things that are true at home are going to be true in the business world with your customers, with your stakeholders as well. Okay. So let's apply those to this startup that recently, not so recently, this was several months ago, but that I, I made a video about a startup called Daily Harvest. They package these sort of clean mm -hmm. foods, prepared foods, and they send them to you. And they had this recall disaster where 
one of their ingredients was making a lot of customers like almost deathly ill. And it turned out there was some sort of um, contaminated ingredient and it was a disaster and people were really upset. But the company was silent for several days because presumably they were scrambling to figure out what can we say? What can't we say? How should we approach this? But for something like that, let's say, you know, Daily Harvest brings you in. They say, we don't know what to do. People are getting hospitalized. Obviously, if we knew about this, we would have taken measures to prevent it. But what do we do now? How would you walk that company through the roadmap of what needs to happen? The first thing is that often in a crisis, our instincts are wrong. And we get very emotional. It's a company that, you know, the leadership has built. They have a lot invested in it. And uh, the first instinct is to get lawyers involved. And lawyers play an incredibly important role. But sometimes their instinct is often wrong as well. And what I mean by that is that the instinct among lawyers is often to believe that saying nothing is the best strategy, that you cannot get in more trouble if you have not added kind of fuel to the fire. So I would argue that in this world that we operate in, the opposite is true. That often it is what you don't say that gets you in trouble. In fact, there's a famous uh, study in the medical arena that when you look at doctors who get sued for malpractice, the determination of whether or not you get sued has less to do with how good you are at diagnosing the problem and more to do with how effectively you communicate with the patient. And that if you had empathy, if you connected with the patient, even if you got the diagnosis wrong or you did the procedure wrong, you're less likely to be sued. The same is kind of true here where you have to be out there communicating. There are many ways to communicate without taking responsibility for things. There are ways to show that you are taking this as seriously as your customers to acknowledge, like if this is something that customers are clearly connecting to Daily Harvest, then them being silent does nothing to diminish that. Or them saying that people are connecting it to Daily Harvest does nothing to really accelerate or expand that. It is an acknowledgement of what everyone's thinking. And that's really a good place to start. And then there are other things that are important to do from there. That's what I noticed about this particular case is the longer they were silent, the more irate and outraged people became. And that actually ended up making them look even worse. Whereas I feel like if they spoke sooner, they could have communicated in such a way that people sort of understood, oh, this is like a, an incredibly unfortunate thing that happened. But when you don't acknowledge it, that's within your control. Absolutely. So I'm a creator. I accidentally became a creator and I observe the world of influencers and celebrities. And when people say, you know, they say the wrong thing, they slip up and then they, you know, fall into the death spiral of getting canceled. With something like that, I imagine a lot of the principles would transfer over. So for something like that, let's say somebody didn't say something intentionally egregious, but they they said the wrong thing. It got misinterpreted in a certain way. And then the social media crowds pounced on it in a way that escalated. So in those situations, what would you say are some good things to remember? First of all, I think that there are some situations that you get yourself into, given the, the world that we're operating in, that are really hard to kind of turn into a win or to avoid, you know, being canceled, I think you can mitigate the damage. I think you might be able to kind of get more people to neutral. And then if you take a pause, then you can kind of come back. But I think the culture that we're operating in is incredibly unforgiving. But I think often the cover up or the response is worse than the crime in terms of what happens. You know, so the things that people do wrong that I think are most important to look at are not really apologizing in a way that is credible. Right. You know, people can see through it. I mean, if you take Dave Chappelle's kind of joke on SNL about just having read 
Now, there is something to be said for that because I do think that showing up is better than not saying anything or denying, but you can show up and continue to be criticized for not being authentic, not being real about things. I think the most important thing is to, to be able to demonstrate that you get it in a way that doesn't sound like you are trying to avoid responsibility for it. That being said, I think sometimes, and we see it more and more now that there is a, an approach to just playing through of saying, look, I did it wasn't what I intended. You can punish me for it, but you know, you ought to be focused on something else. I'm going to either reject the premise that I deserve to be canceled based on this, or, you know, kind of continue to focus on the people who are not this sensitive. I think that the traditional kind of, I'm sorry, therefore I get forgiven, I think has been blown up a little bit. And now if you believe that this was an aberration, you've got to kind of fight for it and continue to uh, reinforce with the people who support you, why they should continue to support you. You founded your firm in 2003, and since then, the landscape of social media has evolved quite a bit. How has your job, your line of work, shifted because of social media and because of how sort of 24-7 everything is and because of how quickly things can escalate? The biggest area is kind of mindset-wise in terms of being able to, to understand what is going to happen in a crisis. You know, in a crisis, the facts don't really matter, unfortunately. There's gonna be a ton of misinformation. The misinformation, the more negative that it is, the faster it's gonna travel. There's a lot of science behind that. And the notion that you can kind of correct the record in one shot when people say things that are untrue or unfair, it doesn't work, you know? And so if you don't appreciate that at the beginning, you will just be taken over by events and by emotion and not be able to respond. If you're in a crisis, you have to recognize that it is going to take time, consistency, repetition, action to kind of rebuild and find those moments where you can start to reshape the way people feel about you because it's, it's going to feel like uh, you can't do anything and it's going to be a while before you see that the things that you're doing actually have an impact. Would you say that given this landscape in which so many companies have experienced crises and been quote unquote canceled, is there some sort of a, a silver lining to that where maybe the public has more amnesia because there are so many companies and brands and people who have made missteps? Or is it not necessarily easier to rehabilitate your reputation despite how, you know, prevalent this phenomenon is? That's an interesting question. I, I think, so what's happened with Bud Light and Coles and Target uh, lately is an interesting one because when it first happened and I commented on it, I actually thought that it was going to be a blip because in the past, most of these conservative boycotts have been blips. They've come out, they've been, you know, a couple of days of fewer and they have receded and these have not. And the nature, you know, in the midst of this kind of anti-woke movement that's happening, there is a greater kind of organization around this and more power to the conservative kind of movement than we've seen before. And so these brands, I think Bud Light being the most affected of the three, are going to have a tough time rebounding. I think they will, but they're going to have to rebuild as opposed to just rebounding, which has often been the case. And so I think depending on which cross currents of the kind of culture wars that you get caught up in, it can be a really challenging one. The other thing is that old narratives die hard. Often these things will last, if they get embedded in the narrative about the company, they will last a long time. You know, if you go back, uh, you and I touched on the financial crisis before this, if you go back to some of the banks impacted at the 
the financial crisis or you take a Wells Fargo after the financial crisis, their business will recover, but there will always be a subset of people who kind of remember that Wells Fargo. And so the challenge is how do you overcome that over time so that it doesn't just produce a drag on your ability to, to grow. So for a company like Bud Light, when they rebuild, and that's an interesting distinction between rebounding and rebuilding, when they rebuild, which seems like a long game, do they need to rebuild by focusing a little bit more on a slightly more progressive customer base because now they've kind of maybe burned some bridges, so to speak, with their more conservative base? Or is there any chance for them to rebuild with their existing base that is turned away from them? There are a lot of dynamics at play that were at play with Bud Light before this happened. I I don't know enough about to really, to have a sense of what their strategy should be, other than that I know that the brand was weakening overall. Usually that's because they don't have as clear a proposition in the minds of their customers where the customer base has moved on to different, either different brands or different, in this case, beverages. And so I think the challenge or the mistake that they made is they, they jumped from A to Z in terms of there's no adjacency, not to draw too big a stereotype from the the fratty audience that the VP of marketing referred to and the trans audience that Dylan Mulvaney was part of. Like if you're gonna expand your base, you generally go to the next logical audience. You don't go all the way to a different audience where you have to have a different proposition, a different message, a different almost set of values. It just seems like that was a mistake to go so far afield. Although I think they got caught in something that far exceeds what they actually did. They seem to have struck a nerve, the nerve that is sort of like inflamed in the culture wars right now. Would you say that this was sort of an attempt to position themselves as more ruthful and progressive and they just made a math calculation or what do you think happened there? Again, I don't know exactly what the strategy was, but from what we can piece together, it sounds like the most charitable view is that they launched an influencer campaign where they reached out to, you know, a hundred plus influencers. They each got a can. One of them happened to be Dylan Mulvaney and she happened to post. And the rest is history. It may have occupied a broad spectrum of influencers. If they were actively trying to target the trans audience, then presumably they do a lot of research. Presumably they had some research to suggest that there was some opportunity there. If it was intentional, I don't think that it was intentional. I think they were trying to broaden the audience and they miscalculated and they were prepared. That is an interesting insight about expanding to adjacencies before you make a significant leap because that kind of pivot to our earlier point about authenticity needs to feel like it's progressing in this organic way instead of this big, maybe opportunistically. Yeah. I mean, and if, you know, they've got a lot of line extensions where they were going for different audiences, but it was with a different product and to try and do it with an established product and particularly in the environment that we're operating in just seems like it, it would have been a big miscalculation. What do you think other companies, other big brands, especially like CPG brands, are taking away from this? Are they thinking, we don't want to touch any of that. We shouldn't just talk about any of it because somebody on some side is going to get upset. Or are they taking away from it? Oh, this is kind of how you do it and how you don't do it. I know you can't speak for, you know, every Fortune 500 company ever. But based on what you know, what do you think are the takeaways and what are the conversations happening in, you know, conference rooms? Yeah, so I think that the companies that we're talking to, I think there's been a fair amount of fear already. I think this really amplified the fear and has had a chilling effect without question. So they're doing less. 
I think there are those that are really reevaluating. There were those who were kind of doing this because it was really core to the leader's beliefs. And so they were pushing forward. That's one group. I think most companies who were doing these things were doing them because they were being pushed by employees. They didn't necessarily believe it was central to their business. They thought that they had to. And those companies are now reevaluating whether it's worth doing or not. And so not only is it a temporary chill, I think it may be a longer term chill. I think companies are now in Pride Month is, is an example where companies are trying to figure out how to do the things that they really and appropriately believe are important about supporting a group of people represented in their employee base and in their customer base without putting themselves out there and saying, this is not our brand. This is a value that we have in supporting diversity or in supporting different groups of people. And we want to support the LGBTQ plus community. So I think they're still putting out announcements about pride or support for pride, but they are not in many cases doing the things that they might otherwise have done you know, a year ago. It seems tough because um, let's take, you know, 2020 in the in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the protests that were happening just a few years ago. If you didn't say anything, it was potentially something that could mm -hmm. turn into a crisis. Now, if you do say something, and obviously these are very different, you know, causes and issues, but at the same time, I can see from just a purely business perspective, companies thinking, I don't know what move I can make here because on certain things, certain customers might get really upset if we don't speak up or if we try to reel something back because they're going to see it as sort of kowtowing to the reactionary left or the right or whoever. Yep. And on the other hand, saying something puts us at risk as well. So how do we navigate this? How are PR teams internally evolving with what the current landscape is, because it seems to be shifting quite a bit. How much most PR teams are evolving, I'm not sure. I, I still think that there's a belief that this is a blip and that, you know, it may be temporary. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think right now we are operating in a world of extremism on both sides and companies are almost by definition risk averse and moderate, right? And so how do you navigate that? and find a middle ground. In some ways, it's helpful for them to have the balance on both sides because it's safer to not pick a side when you know you're going to get killed on, on either side. So that may make it easier. And I think it, it may push companies to get back to the business of business, which, you know, for some groups and causes is not, not a good outcome. Uh, and the question for those groups and causes is going to be like, how do you make progress in this environment when it seemed like, you know, all the momentum was going in your direction and now that's stopped. If somebody is starting a brand today, and a lot of listeners are, they're starting tech startups and, and consumer brands. If somebody's starting a brand today, let's say they just want to take into consideration, you know, how to storytell in a way that doesn't provoke any of their customers and, sure. and is setting them up for success in the long run. Would you say that it's better to actually try to not be too political from the beginning so that you're not kind of at risk of antagonizing any side? Or would you say it's actually more advantageous to firmly plant yourself in one camp so that in a way it's kind of understood where you stand. So there's not going to be this like big fallout that happens when you make a mistake. I think the answer is that you have to know what choice you're making, right? So there are different strategies that you can take. I think we're starting to see more kind of red companies and blue companies out there, companies that are explicitly choosing a side and they are associated with that side. And and there are advantages to doing that because you may attract a certain employee base that is aligned with your values and a customer base that's aligned with your values. And then you don't have that disconnect that can often be a source of challenge. I don't think that's good for the world necessarily, but, um, but I think it's definitely a strategy. 
If you're not going to do that, then I think you have to be really careful about how you wade into policy and politics, which doesn't necessarily mean you have to be careful about having values that are maybe more progressive or more conservative. I think where a lot of companies get into trouble, and we saw this in the post-Dobbs debate in terms of how companies did or did not respond. I think companies realized that if they they were going to respond by attacking the Supreme Court, that was really risky and probably not a smart one. If they were going to respond by talking about the values that they believed in or that they supported as a company and that that had to do with women's health and women's ability to get the care that they chose in the places that they wanted access to and they focused on individual access to healthcare, it was a much safer space. Now, that might be disappointing for pro-choice advocates, but it was a, a very calculated and, to my mind, smart decision about how to be true to values uh, without poking the bear. Do you think that this heightened political tension in the landscape for brands today is temporary, or do you think this is the new normal? I think it's the new normal, at least until probably November of 24. You know, often what we see is that there are inflection points in the way culture moves, in the way politics moves, in the way attitudes move. And this is very tied to politics. I do think that we are not likely to go back anytime soon to the kind of one-sided pressure from the left to move towards more progressive values. So we're going to have a more balanced conversation going forward. I happen to think that you actually get more done when you can operate in a space that accounts for different people having different views. So I don't think it's ever going back to where it was, but it's probably not going to stay where it is. Uh-huh. Do you feel like the shifting sort of landscape and how times are constantly evolving and how social media changes things, does that keep this, for lack of a better word, intellectually challenging for you? Is it always intellectually challenging or do you feel like you kind of have, you know, like, I know my process, I've done this. I, this is not my first rodeo. This is my thousandth rodeo. What stimulates you now? Yeah, I love that question. So, you know, what I love about what we do is that this is a puzzle of human psychology Mm -hmm. and human psychology is not static. I mean, even though some of the underlying kind of biases that we have and the way that we process information, but what's happening right now with with ESG on both sides is actually, we talk about internally that it it hurts my brain. Like it is a really complicated challenge to untangle, particularly for companies who are trying to do the right thing, which may not be the thing that all their employees wish that they were doing, but they are trying. They're made up of people who I think are trying to, to do the right thing. And so how do you help them do it and avoid being on the front page, you know, when they don't want to be on the front page? It is a really challenging situation. And so I love trying to untangle these puzzles. Sometimes we do a better job of it than others, but it's never dull. What are lessons you've learned from times when you could have done better? Uh So my favorite example was actually from the financial crisis where we were helping an industry group in the financial services industry try and address the backlash against banks and banking. And we had come up with what I thought was a really powerful program for the banks that would require them to go out and basically listen to the public who was pretty angry at that point. And all the research that we did, everything that we did was really, really kind of suggested that this was the right direction. But what we underestimated was kind of how uncomfortable this was going to make the leadership at the banks feel and that it was untenable. Like it was a stupid thing to recommend, not because it wouldn't be the right answer, but because it wasn't the right answer for our client. And so 
the biggest kind of calibration that I've had over time is that, is that it is only a good answer if it's one that the client is willing to accept and that it, it may be suboptimal and we can push, but that if it's not something, if it's something they reject, then it doesn't matter how good it would really be. That brings up for me the question of how do you deploy persuasive skills that you teach your clients to sometimes bring a client around to a view that they might find um, maybe instinctively uncomfortable, but you know this is going to work? It's a great and really relevant question because it, it's something that I'm still learning is that my instinct is often to just tell people what I think. And sometimes that means telling them that I think that they're wrong. And just as I don't think it works when clients do it with their consumers, I have to learn to do it differently. And so what I am really often trying to do is find a way in that can get them nodding their head in approval or an agreement with something. I mean, our kind of crisis response framework fundamentally is how do I acknowledge that I know what you're feeling, accept that your feelings are valid, communicate to you that we are on the same side and trying to achieve some of the same goals. And here's how I am helping you do that. And that last bit is where I'm adding information that may get you to change your attitude or behavior. And so I now really deliberately try and do that myself when I am talking to clients and I know I'm trying to move them from where they are to where I think that they should. Are there certain things that typically come up where clients are resistant because they have maybe misconceptions about um, what's effective that you repeatedly have to try to persuade them to get on board with? Absolutely. And it's so in the tech space, it's particularly true. Any engineering driven space, when you are connecting with engineers, engineers, like almost by definition, believe that there is an answer. It either works or it doesn't, right? Communication is very different and often takes a much more circuitous route to getting to the answer. So engineers often come from the perspective of, look, there are facts, those facts, it's physics, it's, you know, something else, they either work or they don't work and the facts should work. So let's just tell them the facts, but that completely ignores human psychology. But engineers don't necessarily need to know human psychology in order to solve engineering problems. You know, so kind of bridging that gap, it's something that I come back to over and over again, because a lot of the industries that we work with are highly technical industries. So their position is, well, this is what happened. And, you know, maybe even like we didn't do anything wrong. So we'll just explain. And you go, hold it right there. (laughs) Do you find that you've personally gotten better at communication from this line of work? Oh, absolutely. What we do is every day I'm writing a message and testing it with an audience, often in research where I have to go and I'm like, I thought that this was really good. And then I hear the people that I'm trying to persuade tell me all the ways that it's not and teach me why the thing that worked in one situation doesn't work in another. And so when we're doing our job well, you know, we get to do that a fair amount of time. Our job is to learn. It is to really kind of process, even though the the topics and the industries are totally different. There are these kind of human truths about how people process information, about how to use facts, how to tell stories, uh, how to approach people when, uh, when you need to communicate empathy and how to bring people along. And I'm just continually trying to build on what I know to become better at what I do. What are either brands or companies or political candidates, individuals that you see as being exemplary of these skills? Hmm. I'll start with probably the most controversial and it's less true today than it was in 2016, but we identified Donald Trump early on as being exceptional at communicating, particularly because he had identified three or four different things that he was going to continue to repeat and make simple for his audience 
you know, and provide support for people on the left don't appreciate this, but actually his view was an optimistic view for people on the right. And that was making America great again. And so he did a lot of the things from a pure communication perspective really well. And, you know, in politics, there have not been any other communicators since he's now I think, less effective at what he did. That's from a, from a political perspective, from a corporate perspective, you know, there are CEOs, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan is really good and authentic and kind of consistent in how he communicates. And I think he, he gives you a mix of positive and negative. He's very uh, straightforward in how he communicates. And so he's built up a lot of credibility over time in terms of how and what he says. Uh, in terms of companies that are out there, the ones that do it really well are the ones that, you know, that you can kind of anticipate what they are going to say. I think, I think like a Nike over time has been, even when they face controversy, they have pressed forward with the message that people understand what it is that they're going to say and what they're going to stand for. And I think who's kind of come through kind of crisis or challenge lately uh, and done really well. It's often the ones that you don't notice that are doing it really well. And so they become harder to see because they've taken a challenging situation and turned it into a non-story. I actually really appreciate you bringing up Trump as an example, because I think that, you know, if you have certain ideological leanings, then it's anathema to cite any positive about him, even from an objective neutral standpoint, not ideologically. And I think we need more of overcoming that profound bias where we're not even willing to neutrally assess things. So to recap what you were saying, simplify the message, repeat the message, make it optimistic. I also feel like he seems like an entertainer at heart. He is an entertainer. And so he's able to capture people's attention in a way that seems more driven by that entertainment value and that emotion without getting too lost in everything else that I think from maybe an intellectual or logical standpoint is important, but it turns out it's not as effective always as people think. Would you say that that's accurate? Absolutely. So I, I wrote a book a while back called The Language of Trust, and there are four principles that I keep coming back to in effective messaging. The first one, and, and you named a couple of them. So first one is plain spoken, speaking the language of the people. He definitely does that, right? He just talks to them as they are. It's not too sophisticated. The second one is be positive. Don't be negative. And people really did view his message as positive and kind of optimistic as much as there was dark language underneath it. The third is be personal. And that's what he's also really good at. He kind of makes you feel like you're part of the story and connects with you. And part of the entertainment is that it's engaging. And so you feel like he is not talking at you. He is talking to you or with you. And that's really effective. And then the last one is plausible because he made these kind of outrageous promises. This is probably the place that he was less, at least effective is you know, how do you make sure that what you're saying is credible, that people are going to believe what you say? But before he was elected the first time, he could do anything or so it seemed you know, to the people who didn't know him well, he was extremely successful. And so all that sounded plausible as well. But those are the four principles that I think really make people effective communicators. I also feel like even when he was not being plausible, the implausible sort of claims or promises were almost rooted in this bombastic spirit that was meant to make you feel like you were an insider and you were part of this tribe. And that I think really evokes emotion in people. Yes. I mean, the tribalism is really at the core of, of what people are using right now uh, from a populist perspective to try and rally their base. It doesn't always do the most effective job at bringing new people into the tribe, but if you're there, it is the best tool for motivating the people who already kind of agree with you, part of your community. So your book, The Language of Trust, is one that people should get their hands on to understand a lot of these principles. 
are there other books and they don't necessarily just have to be about communication, but is there anything maybe in other sort of disciplines that come to mind that have shaped your thinking and that you think would be helpful for other people to understand maybe case studies and lessons? I think the psychology behind it, like ultimately we communicate for a reason, right? We're, we're communicating to either give people information, change their perception, drive their behavior. It is all about the audience. And so the more you understand about how the audience thinks and perceives, the better off you are. And so the ones that kind of have been most influential for me, which are, you know, not going to be new to many of your listeners, I'm sure, but it's, you know, it's Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow on Behavioral Science. It's Cialdini's Influence on Persuasion. Uh, one that maybe they haven't read is Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, which kind of crosses over from psychology to politics. It's about moral psychology and is really profound in looking at how different people ultimately kind of process issue communications and, and how to speak to them in different ways. Mm -hmm. What do you think are your skills and attributes that make you good at what you do? So I think the first is really having empathy you know, is really the most important thing is that like when I'm doing my job, I am really trying to understand the person that I am communicating. So that helps me define what the kind of the puzzle is that I need to solve. You know, what is it that you're thinking that where do you come from? What's your perspective, your belief? And I have to listen for that. And I have to be able to kind of process what it is that you're, that you're saying. The second then is, is kind of having the ability to structure a response. And so I look at communication in a very structured way. You know, there are pieces of the communication puzzle and if I can put them together, if I can see patterns and put them together, then I'm going to be effective at kind of responding to what I've learned about. Do you think law school helped you with that? Totally. I mean, the process, I still go back to, sometimes I use it as a teaching tool of, of issue rule analysis conclusion mm -hmm. is, again, if I, if I want to persuade you of something, the issue is how do I acknowledge and kind of understand the issue and frame it in a way that, that you're looking mm -hmm. at it not the way that I'm looking at it. Then once I've kind of got you to nod your head, I'd say, what rule am I applying? Which is often again, something that and maybe multiple rules. I'm going to pick the version of the rule that aligns with your way of thinking. So again, you're, you're with me. Then we'll analyze together in the communication. I'll, I'll give you my proof points, my points of view. So then ultimately by the time I get to the conclusion that I'm drawing, you will draw it as well. And so like that's the structure of communication that we use in persuasion as much as we do in, you know, kind of going through briefs in law school and losing in, in law. It almost seems like a mix of this is a gross simplification, but left brain, my brain, EQ, but also that more analytical structured thinking. Would you say that that's accurate? Yes. I mean, I think the EQ is extremely important. I think the IQ is also critical because you got to know what to do with what you've learned, but it is, it's a heavy dose of EQ. Well, Michael, this has been fascinating. I'm really honored that you came on. Thank you well, for thank it. You. This is great. I really, yes, great questions. Awesome conversation. That is it for this conversation, guys. I hope you got so much out of it. And again, if you liked this episode and you learned something, share it with a friend and share it on social media. It just helps so, so much. I appreciate you. I want to hear your feedback. Until next time.